I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Signals to Danger. We've done it. We finally made it to episode 10 and just in time for Christmas. As ever, thanks to everyone for listening, sharing and liking. Please continue. It's lovely to have you here, so do please keep coming back. I want to give a special thanks to our new patrons, Simon and Ben. Thank you very much and happy to have you on board. Now, if you can spare a few pounds a month and you want to help support the podcast, please get yourself over to patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. It's not obligatory. I'm definitely going to keep making the podcast regardless. It's just if you want to do that. In addition, we still do have a small selection of railway and podcast-themed items in our shop, which we can find at signalstodanger.com on the shop page. The last thing for me to hit in today's intro is what the REIB has been up to recently. Since we last spoke, they've released a report and a safety digest. Now, safety digests are a way of quickly sharing important safety messages when they've decided not to undertake a full investigation because normally it's already been covered by a previous recommendation or an ongoing investigation is going to cover it. They also would release a safety digest if if the learning mainly relates to compliance with existing rules, procedures and standards. Now this digest relates to a derailment at Bognor Regis Station, and the report was into a fairly terrifying near miss at a level crossing in Norfolk last year. Both of them are worth a read. The safety digest obviously takes a lot less time, but... I really would recommend a read of the Level Crossing Report. And as well as that, if you go to YouTube, there's some forward-facing CCTV of that incident that will make your blood run cold. With the intro out of the way, let's move into the episode. The splintered wood and iron was strewn along the embankment. Carriages lay in ruins next to the canal and on their side over the tracks. The festive season would never make it for 34 families. It was the night before Christmas and disaster had struck. This time the year is 1874 and our story takes place at Shipton-on-Cherwell.
officers at the scene searched through the wreckage for the injured. At least 13 people are known to have died. Carriages are crushed one on top of another. One lies metres away and appears partially burned. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan. I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. So this time round I've decided to try and focus on a disaster appropriate to the season, and luckily I haven't had much choice I've had to drag myself all the way back as far as 1874, nearly 140 years ago. Due to the fact the railway tends to shut down over Christmas Day and Boxing Day for maintenance, there isn't a great number of accidents around this time. This is a fact that me, personally, am counting on, as I'm on call for a UK train operating company until 8am on Christmas Day this year, so I'm certainly hoping the phone will not ring. And I'll also warn you now, this episode might not be as long as some of my others. Material was a little thinner on the ground here. The report was only 17 pages long, because a lot of the appendices were missing, um, and I've been unable to find them anywhere else, but I shall try and do my best for you. I normally go through what's been going on in the year at this point to help contextualise it for people. I don't think that's going to be much use for 1874, but I'll do my best. July saw a fire in Chicago which burnt down 47 acres of the city, destroyed 812 buildings and killed 20. Closer to home in the UK, Queen Victoria sits atop the throne and this green and pleasant land shows yet again that we were not immune from our own disasters. In April, 54 miners were killed in a pit disaster in Duckinfield, Cheshire. Perhaps the most lasting event of this year was a decision made in July by the General Post Office. Following trials in London, bronze-green paint began to be replaced with red on pillar boxes up and down the country, a decision which remains to this day, barring the odd Olympic gold job. Railway-wise, we've taken a step further back even beyond last time. When we talked about Castle Carry, we were in the era of the Big Four, the LMS, the LNER, the Southern and the GWR. These Big Four railway companies were created by the Railways Act of 1921, which grouped 120 smaller companies into... You guessed it, a big four companies. One of these smaller companies was indeed the GWR, the Great Western Railway. The child of one of the heroes of the Industrial Revolution, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, this company had existed from 1833 and, by the time of the grouping, was the biggest individual railway in terms of route mileage, and six other large railways had been folded into it in that grouping. This is why the name continued on until 1947 and the creation of the nationalised British Railways. But all of this hadn't taken place yet. As of the 1874 disaster, we're still talking about the GWR in isolation.
Every year, the last few days in the run-up to Christmas are busy on every method of transport. The railway almost swells as people hurry to their local station, loaded down with gifts, winter clothes and family members, to start their journeys up and down the country. This is the same now as it was back in 1874. The journey's a little longer, the train's a little less comfortable back then, but they still served the same purpose, bringing families together under the banner of the festive spirit. At 10.03am, the 10 o'clock London to Birkenhead Express steamed out of Paddington Station on its long journey north. The engine hauled its ten passenger carriages and two brake vans out of the station under the careful control of its driver, Mr Richardson. Over the next 56 minutes, the train powered on as far as Reading, but by this point it had already been delayed by 10 minutes over the timetable. Other services and signals had decreased its timeliness over the first part of its journey. The time of the arrival into Reading was recorded by the senior guard, J. Price, and he would continue to record this as the journey continued, as was his duty. He rode in the rearmost of the two guards' vans, four carriages from the end of the train. Before the express left Reading to continue on its seasonal adventure, a luggage van and an additional carriage were added to the rear of the train. This is something that happened a lot more at this time than it does now, a train's formation being changed mid-journey. Nowadays, when it does occur, it's normally the coupling of two multiple units, permanently coupled sets of self-driven carriages. One train arrives from X location, another from Y, and then they couple up on the platform before going onwards on their journey to Z. It's a very fast process now, as pretty much every passenger train has automatic couplers. All the driver needs to do is have a low-speed collision with the other unit, and the mechanical and electrical systems do all the rest. And I can hear the drivers out there telling me it's really not that complicated, and I will, I will give them that. It really isn't quite as simple as that. There is a very regimented way to drive your train into another and you really do have to make sure that both units are safe and ready to be coupled. But I'm sure you get the idea, and if you've ever been stood on a train when they're coupling and you're not expecting it, you can understand the uh, the analogy. It is a process nowadays that can take minutes and requires minimal staffing to do. 1874 brought no such ease of use. To add and take carriages from trains required the use of an entirely separate locomotive, a station shunter, normally a smaller tank engine with no tender, to shuffle the carriages around. This wasn't a quick process, of course, and so much that the station visit at Reading on Christmas Eve for our train was a 20-minute affair. Nowadays, a modern passenger train spends far less time at the station. In fact, the working timetable, which is the almost identical internal timetable of the railway, as opposed to the Great British Timetable. It shows that station dwell time for most services at Reading are two minutes. And this isn't unique to Reading. Most station dwell times are between one and five minutes for intermittent stations, and the only reason they reach the higher end of that is in areas prone to small delays, with complicated station entries and exits, etc., or where very high passenger flows are anticipated, major commuter hubs. The additional carriages were added and they continued from Reading onto their next station call, Oxford. Another four minutes were lost on the way to Oxford, but there wasn't any opportunity to make up time here as the fun and games of shunting was to occur yet again. At Oxford, the engine which had brought the train from London was shunted off, and another, 
number 478, brought out a third-class carriage and placed it in front of the guard's brake van at the head of the train, yet again increasing the length. The journey ahead had some fairly steep inclines, and the locomotives of the day, while powerful for their time, weren't really on a par with the beasts yet to come to the railway. Because of this, sometimes it was required for more than one locomotive to be added to trains to tackle inclines. Such an incline existed ahead on the route at Hatton Bank, 112 miles from London, on the way northbound. The train had another call just before at Leamington, but a spare loco wouldn't be available there unless it was specifically ordered in advance. This would mean that carriages would need to be taken out at Leamington, and that was far from ideal. Yet more shunting, but to the detriment of decreasing the train. Because of this, Mr Gibbs, the station master at Oxford, directed that a pilot engine, number 386, be added onto the front of the train here to allow for those challenges later on. Of course, all of this messing around invariably added more time on, and at 12.15pm, the express left Oxford a further five minutes late. 35 now in total. Its formation was now the pilot locomotive and the main locomotive, followed by ten carriages and three brake vans. These were a mix of four- and six-wheel carriages, and the whole train totaled around 270 tonnes and 165 metres of length. Fully loaded and heavy, the drivers put on steam and continued their journey up the countries, the Midlands in their minds. A few miles north, and not a long time later, the train had reached a speed of around 30 to 40 miles an hour. The two locals pulling hard had gotten it up to this speed, and they pulled on through the snowy countryside. Seven miles north of Oxford is the village of Shipton-on-Cherwell. The railway didn't call here at the time, but it passed over it in a sweeping left-hand curve, crossing over the curving River Cherwell on one bridge, and shortly after, crossing the canal on another. On this early afternoon, as they started into the turn, something amiss was noted by driver Richardson on the main locomotive. A communication cord had been strung along the carriages of the train. This was supposed to be a means of alerting the driver in case of an emergency. The cord was separated into two portions, one from the rear of the train along each carriage into the central guards van, and another from that van to the tender of the locomotive at the head of the train, where it was attached to either a bell or a gong that would alert the driver. Well, on this date, it wasn't the bell or the gong which alerted Richardson. It was merely that he saw the cord shake and knew something was wrong with it. Now this in turn drew his eyes rearwards and he knew something to be truly wrong as he saw snow and dirt thrown up on the right-hand side of the train behind. At this point, his fireman then noticed a carriage was off the line behind them and the train crew sprung into action. Richardson immediately shut off the steam and sounded the train's whistle. This was the signal for the guards in their vans to apply their own brakes. He then reversed the engine, while the fireman applied the tender brake. The crew of the pilot locomotive ahead of them noticed what was happening, and did the same. It was around this time that the locomotives had approached the bridge over the canal, and shortly afterwards, the drawbar of the lead coach broke, 
and the two engines pulled ahead of the train as they all slowed. But the rest of the train continued into disaster behind them. Once everything had stopped moving, it became clear how the 17 vehicles of the train had come to rest. While the locals had run ahead, the carriages had not fared so well. The leading third-class coach, the one that the firemen had seen derailing, had been destroyed in its entirety. They didn't even record its position on the plans of the wreckage. The damage was that comprehensive. The next three vehicles, a brake van and two carriages, had run off to the left of the line, down the embankment and come to rest heavily damaged on the south bank of the Oxford Canal. The fifth had also derailed to the left, but instead of heading straight down the embankment, it had continued forwards and then collided with the parapet of the canal bridge. This carriage, along with the next, the sixth, had managed to cross the canal in this way and had been found on the north bank of the canal the fifth almost completely destroyed itself. The seventh and eight vehicles had also derailed and were found on their sides but still atop the rails. The ninth and eleventh had derailed but remained upright and the last two vehicles were still railed. The carriages, which were of a predominantly wooden construction, did not fare well when subjected to the forces of being flung down an embankment and across a canal bridge. As I've said before, Several were destroyed almost entirely. The occupants of these carriages fared equally as well, and the accident left 69 people injured. But the tragedy at Shipton had more substantial consequences, however, and as a result of the crash, 34 people travelling home on Christmas Eve were not recovered alive from the wreckage. The accident at Shipton-on-Sherwell needed investigating thoroughly. Although this was a bit of a special day, it wasn't necessarily a special journey. This type of train hauled people and goods up and down the country every day, and this line was used every day, so any underlying fault or risk needed to be identified so that it could be rectified for the future. Colonel Yolland of Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate was assigned the responsibility of reporting back to the government and the industry on the causes. As ever, we know that there were certain questions which the investigation needed to answer. First and foremost of these, what had led to the vehicles of the 10am Express to leave the track at Shipton? And secondly, were there any factors which could have lessened the outcome of the accident?
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In previous episodes, we've discussed derailments and we've talked about the ways in which they can occur. It's time to apply the same logic to Shipton on Cherwell. I've previously made points about how the majority of derailments occur when there are junctions or excessive curves to contend with. We know that these are the times that pose the most risk into the situation. Comparing this to accidents that we've dealt with previously, we'll start with Potter's Bar. That accident, as we learned, was down to a faulty junction which failed and caused a high-speed derailment and a disaster. On this occasion, however, we can immediately eliminate junctions as the line in this area is free from any sets of points. If we then think back to Morpeth, we had the joint issues of both an incredibly tight corner, coupled with an irresponsible use of speed. But again, this wasn't the case here. Although the line at Shipton was on a curve, this was a curvature which was long and sweeping. Nothing of any concern, especially not at the speed at which the train was travelling. Several members of train crew estimate the speed to have been between 30 and 40 miles an hour, which was hardly dangerous for the situation. And that brings us to one of the other episodes we've covered. In the episode on Hatfield, I used the line, the unbroken straight rail is pretty good at keeping track and train together. In the year 2000, in the Hertfordshire countryside, it was a broken rail itself which caused the derailment of a high-speed passenger train. So, was a broken rail to blame here? Understandably, it was one of the many considerations the investigators had to make. And when they walked the track, following the disaster, they found something which could potentially have been a smoking gun. 44 yards south of the canal bridge, a rail was found which was bent out to the left of the track. And in fact, the marks in the embankment could be traced from that bent rail down the embankment to the wreckage of the second, third and fourth vehicles where they lay on the bank of the canal. It was clear that these vehicles had exited the tracks here and then slid and rolled down along this path. It was also clear that as each vehicle left the track, that created the instigating force for the next, pulling it off. But having found this damaged section of track, there was another almost more important question that needed answering. Was the damage to the track the reason for the crash or an outcome of it? As nice as it might be to have a really obvious answer to the question why, it was eventually decided that this was actually an outcome and not the cause. The decision was reached due to some of the other things that were found while investigators walked along the track and retraced the steps of the train. Further back along the line, before the river bridge in fact, 
On the transoms and longitudinal timbers which helped to keep the tracks engaged, marks were found. These marks were indicative of a wheel running inside of the left track, inside of the rail itself and along the timbers. These marks continued along the track towards the bridges, and indeed up until a point 30 yards from the river bridge, which preceded the canal bridge. They were also found up to this point corresponding marks on the outside of the right-hand rail. At this point, the marks of the flange of a left wheel on the transoms, which had steadily kept between 6, 7, 8 inches inside from and distant from the left-hand rail, began to diverge further from it, and the marks on the outside of the right rail, on the longitudinal timber, ceased as the rim of that wheel began to travel on the ballast. Between 60 and 70 yards north of the centre of the bridge over the Cherwell, there were indications of a left wheel of a vehicle having reached the longitudinal timber under the right rail. From that point onwards, the marks on the timber became more and more numerous, and harder to ascertain their origin. Of course, we know that a lot, lot more after, the second vehicle exited the rails, where the left-hand one was bent to the left, and that in turn pulled each following carriage off as if they were dominoes. The presence of damage and evidence of derailed wheels prior to the broken rails led investigators to the conclusion that it had not been the result of the forces involved and not an instigating event. Which leads us with a fairly crucial question. If there wasn't a junction, or speeding, or an excessive curve, and the derailment didn't happen because the rails broke, what caused the accident? The answer would be found at the same time as the damage that had been found to the tracks. As the permanent way inspectors had walked the track from the last station up to the canal bridge, they had found something else. A piece of metal, about three feet in length. It was located in the six foot, the gap between the two tracks. It was determined to be part of the tyre of a wheel from a carriage. And I may have confused a few there with the last bit. Tyres on a train? Well, you might not know it, but a great deal of train wheels have tyres attached to them. Don't think in terms of rubber filled with air, but more in line with a steel or iron rim which sits around the remainder of the wheel. This was because it was just easier and cheaper to replace just the rim as it wore down and not the entire wheel. Think of it as a, a sacrificial layer that's a lot cheaper than going and buying a whole new wheel. The carriages on the trains at Shipton were fitted with Manson's wooden wheels. These were a solid wooden wheel with an iron tyre and rim riveted to the outside to provide contact to the rail. It's obvious, however, that the wheel and tyre were supposed to remain together and finding a piece of tyre in this way was very unexpected. This was further exacerbated when, 30 yards short of the river bridge, a larger piece of the tyre was found. This broken tyre was eventually traced back to carriage 845. This had been the additional third-class carriage, which had been taken on at Oxford, and had ended up leading the train directly behind the locomotives. Indeed, the marks found in the timber of the tracks was indicative of a wheel which had lost its tyre. Understandably, this was far from ideal. To put it simply... Robbed of its iron tyre, the wooden wheel was severely lacking in its ability to guide the train along the tracks, you know, let alone a train that was barrelling along at 40 miles an hour. This method of fastening tyres to wheels was problematic in itself. 
the punching of rivets created theoretical weak points, and the investigator himself made reference in his report to another accident where the failure of a wheel on a lead vehicle created disaster. In the Shipton report, he quoted his own words when he said, The fracture of a tyre is of itself of comparatively little importance, provided it can be retained in its place on the wheel until the journey is completed. But when the tyre breaks, the strain is almost always so great as to cause the bolts or rivets to break immediately. And then the tyre flies off. The wheel breaks to pieces, and in many cases, the carriages are thrown off the line and an accident more or less serious in its consequences ensues. Now this result is totally unnecessary and may easily be avoided. And if you want an emphasis for how unnecessary and avoidable this accident was, the quote that he referenced from his own report was from another accident, one that had taken place in 1861, 13 years earlier. Now that we know that the accident could be blamed on a broken tyre, on an outdated method of wheel design, it's time to answer the second question. Were there any factors which could have lessened the outcome of the incident? If you take the breaking of the tyre as an inevitability, we need to understand whether this needed to lead to such a comprehensively disastrous outcome. The answer, sadly, is probably no, but we can't really be sure. But let's get into it. Firstly, we need to look at the way the train was marshalled, the way it was put together. The leading vehicle of the train was supposed to be a brake van, coupled to the tender and not the passenger carriage. If they'd been marshalled correctly, the defective carriage would have been connected to the brake van in front, and not the tender. That connection would not only have been by the main coupling, but by two side chains as well. Now this may have prevented the broken front wheel from straying too far from true and helped to keep the train in line as it came to a stand. Additionally, there should normally be a brake van at the rear of the train. However, at Shipton, the rear was another passenger carriage. In fact, the rearmost brake van was the seventh vehicle from the tail light. There is a possibility that, and we'll never know how much, this arrangement may have worsened the disaster, and it's all to do with how the couplings on a train behave. The more braking force at the rear of a train like this, as it was slowing, would cause couplings to go taut and behave in tension. This would help to keep things a little more in line as it came to a stand. Taking the rear brake van out of the equation may have contributed to this effect being reduced, but probably not quite as much as the actions of the crew did. Accidentally. The way that they brought the train to an emergency stop may have worsened the disaster as well. If they had noted something was wrong and simply shut off steam and allowed the train to coast to a stand, it's very possible that the broken wheel on the lead carriage would have stayed slightly derailed. If Richardson had whistled for his brakemen to apply their brakes, then the couplings could have tightened up as well and may have even kept a greater level of stability. 
but we'll never know. I'm not criticising them for stopping the train as quickly as possible when they knew something was wrong. They probably just didn't know what was going to come. Because what we do know is that the emergency stop they did undertake probably had the exact opposite effect. As the engines were thrown into reverse, the couplings of the train will have slackened up and all the braking force at the front would have caused the buffers of each carriage to slam up against the one in front. Couplings that were now slack and loose will have allowed for greater lateral and vertical movement and with the damaged wheel off the line, the fate of the leading carriage was sealed. We can't say exactly what would have happened, much like the electron microscope comment, computer modelling was a little outside of the toolkit available at the time. The last factor that could have reduced the impact of the accident would have been starting the braking any earlier, and not necessarily, but given the damage and the makeup of the train, it may have had a lesser effect. There was an opportunity to start earlier, but it was scuppered by a failure of the equipment that was provided. At the point the first tyre broke, a part was flung up against the underside of the train. Passengers in the fateful carriage 845 knew that something was wrong, and they pulled the communication cord, hoping to alert the train crew to bring the train to a stand. For one reason or another, this cord didn't sound a bell and alert the crew. We know that they saw it moving, but not sufficient to sound the warning. Whether this was due to the derailment occurring or people trying to sound it, it still hadn't functioned as planned. There were two possible reasons for this. The first is that different passengers pulling on it at the same time had caused it not to function as planned. It seems like a terrible design flaw, but then this is a system that relies on pulling a cable to ring a bell and relies on it to work the entire length of a train or six or seven carriages at least. It's not high-tech, but it would be fair to say that it was a system of its time. The second and probably more likely explanation came from yet another item that had been found on the track. An investigator stated that when walking over the river bridge with Colonel Golland, he picked up one of the pulleys through which the cord communication passes, which clearly showed that either the tyre, in flying off the wheel or by some other means, had knocked the pulley off which probably could have accounted for the cord not acting as expected. If an effectual system for communicating with the train crew had been in place, we could have been talking about an entirely different disaster now. But I suppose it's important to remember that we're talking about 1874, and things such as the electric telegraph and radio certainly were a little bit out of that time frame. Some of this technology was starting to become available, but it was very much in its infancy. Those steel wheels still had a tyre on, but they started to fit them differently. What they did was to heat up the tyre to expand it. Now this tyre was actually a slightly smaller diameter than the wheel itself. So as it heated up, it expanded, they placed it around the tyre and let it cool. The hot outer rim, the tyre would contract and form what's known as an interference fit. Far safer, this allows for a much more reliable product while still allowing for the sacrificial tyre which can be replaced if needed. In a lot of applications, the use of tyres is actually becoming obsolete. The utilisation of traditional freight wagons was often so low that tyres never really needed renewal, so it was cheaper to fit a one-piece or a monoblock wheel 
monoblock wheels are lighter and off better integrity as there's no tyre to come loose. And modern repair lines can be disrupted by the inspection of the wheel centre once the tyre is removed and that possibly generates extra repair work. And the need to make each tyre fit its allocated wheel centre is challenging as well. There are a lot of solutions out there where the monoblock wheel is actually more economical. Don't get me wrong, there are still a lot of situations where tyres and wheels are still a thing, but certainly not wooden wheels. I certainly know myself that I'm a lot more confident travelling around on trains, knowing that I'm not riding off over the top of a Mansell wooden wheel. The next thing that has improved astronomically is the braking systems. Quite substantially, it would be an understatement. Not only do we no longer rely on brake bands distributed between a train and guards applying individual brakes as and when required, we certainly don't have the driver of the train sounding a whistle to signal that he needs his brakes applied. What we have now is centrally controlled brakes, with a lever in the driver's cab, which react on all parts of the train in concert. That's the situation we have. If the driver knows something is wrong, urgently, he just needs to do nothing more than hit the big red button in his cab, which applies the emergency brake. General braking, much more control as well. He just has to adjust his brake levels, his brake levers. The fact is that there was a system like this that was in existence in 1874, and more modern stock was equipped with it, systems such as the Westinghouse brake or other vacuum brakes. Now, had Richardson had these available to him, he may have been able to apply the brakes from in his cab without relying on the whistle to try and coordinate this action. An application of brakes along the entire train at the same time would have removed any real issues around coupling, slackening or tightening and possibly could have brought the train to a controlled, safe stop. It's a shame it just wasn't the case. The final thing which is almost unrecognisable nowadays compared to what we saw in this episode is the communication cord, or as it's quite often referred to now, the PASCOM. A portmanteau of passenger communication, on most trains this is now a lever or button distributed around the carriages near to doors, which when pressed sounds an alarm in the driver's cab and opens up a line of communication to the driver directly. Any member of the public who's pressed this button in an emergency can now use this to speak to the driver directly and describe the issues that they can see. It may be different in different companies, but the company that I work for, things like if it is pressed in a station platform when you're arriving or leaving, the driver will have to come to a stop. If it's pressed out on the line, wait a few seconds, the driver will come to you. You can discuss what the issue is. Hello, driver. I've heard a very loud noise hit the bottom of the train. It didn't sound like I think we should stop. It's a very, very different situation to pulling a string and hoping somebody will answer in action. Most of the time, these PASCOM systems actually trigger an automatic brake application, unless the driver intentionally overrides it. So if something's alarming, something's wrong, and you press that button, and for some reason that driver's unable to react, maybe he's incapacitated, the train will still come to a stand. All of this system is a far cry from the cables and pulleys of yesteryear.
There is no memorial to the disaster at Shipton on Cherwell, but then this probably is the case for more accidents of this era, where deaths on the railway were tragically more common. And it's terrible to say that, but people were probably used to it, and that does sound callous. I just don't think that disasters back then carried the same significance that they started to in later years. Recommendations from the report were considered, and they did eventually lead to improvements going forwards. But this didn't happen before Christmas was tragically ruined for the families of 24 people on a cold, snowy Christmas Eve. Thanks again for tuning in to episode 10 we will be back again after christmas so please have a good one you'll probably have noticed i've stopped apologizing for the dodgy throat and blot nose because i swear to whatever you believe in it's just not going away once again please like share and review come interact with us on social media we're on twitter and facebook just search for signals to danger if you are interested in supporting us please go ahead and look at our patreon it's patreon.com signals to danger and don't forget the shop at signalstodanger.com. As ever, the music from this episode was excerpts from Light Goes Away by Douglas Maxwell, Deserted City, Warm of Mechanical Heart, Difference, Sunset and Brand New World by Kai Engel, and Merkabar by Jesse Gallagher. In a new little bonus bit, if you are interested in what the soundtrack to me writing this episode was, I will let you know that my two-year-old daughter has just rediscovered Baby Shark, and there is a 60-minute Baby Shark video on YouTube doing the entire song on loop, so that's what's been in my head this week. In any case, until the next episode, travel safe and have a lovely Christmas. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.